It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm your host, Ben Carnes. Thanks for joining us this morning. And we have a really exciting show. Uh, we get to talk about uh, space travel, space exploration, and the federal role in that, and uh, more specifically, uh, federal partnerships in space exploration. And uh, there, there's been an, an ongoing shift in recent years toward uh, increasing involvement of the private sector and of uh, academia uh, to some extent uh, to further uh, the federal efforts, to further what has traditionally been a, a federal effort in space exploration. Uh, we have a very exciting panel of guests. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Tanya Harrison. She is currently the Director of Research for Arizona State University's Space Technology and Science Initiative. And uh, she's also a science team collaborator on the Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity and the upcoming Mars 2020 uh, Sample Caching Rover and a number of other projects and has worked previously uh, on uh, some of NASA's Mars initiatives. And she has a PhD in geology with a specialization in planetary science and exploration. Uh, Dr. Harrison, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my second guest is Peter McGrath. He's the Global Sales and Marketing Director for Space Exploration uh, at Boeing Defense Space and Security. Uh, and he's responsible for leading the business development team and shaping, extending, and capturing business in support of human space exploration missions. And uh, obviously, Boeing has been extremely active in uh, coming alongside the federal government and providing uh, a lot of hardware, a lot of knowledge, and, and research capability uh, in recent years. Uh, Peter, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and my third guest is uh, Casey Dreyer. Casey is the Director of Space Policy at the Planetary Society, and he leads the strategic planning and implementation of the Society's policy and uh, advocacy efforts. Uh, he's also been widely published, New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, on uh, the space policy matters, and he's a regular contributor to the Planetary Report. Uh, and he also uh, hosts a podcast uh, that I'll let him plug uh, on uh, space policy. Casey, uh, thanks for being here this morning. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, so one of the one of the first things that I think comes to mind uh, if you mention space policy, space exploration, uh, at least in the in the average listener's ear, is probably uh, Mars missions. I, I think a few things excite the imagination like uh, like that does. Uh, and in fact, there was uh, there was recently a, a Pew Research Center poll, uh, and it found that a majority of Americans believe that it's essential that the U.S. remain a global leader in space. And people are, are feeling very optimistic. 50% believe that in the next 50 years, uh, that space travel uh, for uh, average people will be a, a routine thing. And uh, one-third believe that there will be colonies on other planets uh, that support uh, can sustain uh, life for long periods of time within the next 50 years. Um, Dr. Harrison, much of your work falls under that umbrella of, of going to Mars and exploring what it will take to get there. Uh, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background on uh, your Mars work and then uh, what you're doing now in that transition? Yeah, so my background has been in basically the surface geology of Mars, looking at um, 
processes that are active today, so things that show us that Mars is not just this dead other world floating out in space. Um, and I think that's really cool to show people that there's actually stuff going on on these other planets. Um, and I mostly look at features that look like they were carved by water in the geologically recent past, and possibly even some stuff that's happening on Mars today with little tiny bits of liquid water, which is obviously really exciting if we're going to be sending humans there soon because we're going to need water for them to use. Um, but I've spent the last 10 years working mostly in mission operations for different NASA missions. So I started out working on the context camera and Mars color imager for the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and then all the color cameras on the Curiosity rover. Um, and now I've been moving backward in time, moving from the newest rover to the oldest rover and uh, working on Opportunity now on its cameras, although uh, Opportunity is asleep at the moment in the middle of a very large dust storm on Mars, so there's not a whole lot to do with the rover at the moment. Um, and then I'm involved with the color cameras that were in the process of building for the Mars 2020 rover as well, which are based on heritage for instruments that we have on the Curiosity rover. And if I understood correctly, it's it, it kind of brought things into perspective for me, the, the notion that there is actually somebody who whose job it is to make these decisions. If I understand correctly, you were the person who, or, or are the person who kind of tells the rover where to point the camera and what to take pictures of. Is that correct? I've done that before. Um, now I mostly work on the, the downlink side, as we call it. So when the images come back from the rover, I look at them from the standpoint, both of as of a geologist, you know, is there anything interesting in the rocks in this picture? Do we need to do anything new and exciting here? And from the standpoint of just the camera health, is there anything wrong with the camera? Is it, does it have any dead pixels? Does it, is it operating within the right temperature ranges? Things like that. And now you, I guess, you, so you continue your NASA work, but you've obviously also transitioned, uh, the reason you're here, you transitioned uh, over to Arizona State University, the New Space Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing there and uh, what the New Space Initiative is? So the goal of ASU's New Space Initiative is to create partnerships between commercial space companies and the university to work together on things like technology development proposals, instrument proposals, science proposals, if we can find something that works out between the company and the university, um, to work together in innovating in space. And we're focusing specifically on the new space sector of companies because a lot of the companies that have been in space for a long time, you know, Boeing, Lockheed, ULA, they don't really need any help. But you have this slew of new companies coming up, and we've had some of them come to us and say, you know, we really want to do things in space, but we don't know how to tie the things that we're doing to what NASA is looking for. And meanwhile, ASU has 45 years of experience with different types of NASA missions. And so we can bring that experience to these companies and help them figure out how to get their legs in space, basically. Um, and it's been a really exciting thing to be able to survey all of the companies that are out there and see the different kind of things that they're doing and figure out, you know, which ones are going to make it. And sadly, sometimes you see some that don't. Um, but uh, we try to keep an eye on them anyway. And, and um, it's a great way to get the students involved as well, because we have this huge shift from students coming in saying, I really want to work for NASA. They come in now and they say things like, I really want to work for SpaceX. And so we've developed this entire commercial opportunities and space class for higher level undergrads and grad students to learn about the entire commercial space sector and what kind of companies are out there and what they're doing so that they get a broader view of what's going on and not just the 
I think the old school mentality of, okay, I go to school, I study space things, I get a PhD, and then I become a professor. For a lot of people, that's kind of what what they do because that's the default. That's what I thought I had to do when I was younger. Um, but now there's so many other opportunities out there, and it's a really exciting time. And I, that, that brings us to the, the real reason that I asked you to come on. I had encountered an article on, on astronomy.com that appealed to my inner nerd, and I found it incredibly cool um, regarding the, the research project that you're heading up called The Five Senses of Space. And can you uh, sort of orient people on what that is? It's a very exciting initiative that you're, you're heading up. Sure. So that project is actually part of a different initiative at ASU called the Interplanetary Initiative. Mm -hmm. And the goal of that project as a whole is to basically look at some of the really big picture questions of space exploration. We have the scientists who are, you know, trying to figure out the minutia of how things on Mars work. And we have engineers that are trying to figure out how to build the rockets and the, the spacecraft that we need to get us there. But interplanetary wants to look at the bigger things like what does it mean for humanity when we become an interplanetary species? How long are we still human if we go beyond Earth? What kind of things are we going to have to take into account when we're making this expansion? And the question that my project for interplanetary is trying to answer is, how do we galvanize public and private support for space exploration? And we figured that we really needed to find a way to make space engaging and relatable to people in a way where all of your senses are engaged. You're not just showing someone a pretty picture or telling them a fact because humans are multisensory beings. We want to experience all of these things. And so we decided to specifically try to target sense that you might not normally get to engage when you're talking about space or if you're going to a museum or something like that. So and I'm actually going to let that be the, the teaser because we're going to have to take a quick break here, but I'll okay. uh, let, let you pick up the, the explanation because it's very exciting and I want you to have a chance to, uh, to get into it a little bit. Uh, but we'll take our first commercial break here on Federal News Radio 1500. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. I'm your host, Ben Carnes, and we were talking to Dr. Tanya Harrison. Uh, Dr. Harrison uh, serves as the director of uh, research for Arizona State University's Space Technology uh, and Science Initiative. Dr. Harrison, you were, you were discussing your five senses of space uh, initiative, and you're saying that it, it uh, basically is allowing people to experience space through senses that they, they might not otherwise uh, be able to experience. And uh, th there was an interesting... Um, project that you guys actually you actually turned it into a discrete uh, item as sort of sort of a science education initiative. Uh, can you tell listeners about that? Yeah, so we ended up trying to figure out what kind of sense we could create that would tell you something about space. And a few years ago, um, it was discovered using a, a telescope in Spain that there's a gas cloud at the center of our galaxy that's comprised of a material called ethyl formate, which is what gives 
um, rum its smell and raspberries their flavor. So we decided to take this and create lip balm from it so that people could experience the smell of the center of our galaxy. Um, and that's what this Discover Magazine article was about and ended up becoming incredibly popular, which is really exciting for the project. Um, and now we're trying to figure out what we can do next. Is there a way that we can try to capture the smell of the moon or the smell of Mars so people can get a better idea of what it might actually be like to be on one of those planets? It's, it's incredibly cool. And, and do you guys have uh, sort of a roadmap of, so it's the five senses of space. I, I, are there thoughts yet on how you're going to kind of creatively bring, bring the other senses into play on this? Yeah, we're in the middle of creating an immersive Mars experience right now in a mobile trailer to basically try to simulate what it would be like to be in a private Mars ice mining company in the relatively near future, but have it all set up so that you're not just walking into a space and looking around kind of like a, a museum exhibit. It's a space where you're meant to go in, interact with all the things that are there. We want to have... Um, you know, the windows are made up of television sets so that we can be projecting things on the outside, like showing people what the sunset looks like as time goes by on Mars because the sunsets are blue. And a lot of people don't know that or they've never seen anything like that before. So it tends to be something really exciting for people. Um, we want to pop in the smell of Mars into this thing so that you can really get that type of experience as well. Since um, the lunar astronauts, for example, described a very distinct smell of like gunpowder and cooking meat when they came back in from their moonwalks. So we're curious to see if Mars smells similar or if we can figure out from Martian meteorite samples that Mars smells completely different from the moon, which would still be really exciting. And so you guys have a pretty good test audience. Are you guys actually running the, the samples by the astronauts who are there? Is there an opportunity to do that and see how, how close you're coming to the real deal? That's my end goal. I would really love to try and simulate the moon. I think that's my next like pet goal for this project and then get one of the remaining moonwalkers to come and smell it because smell is such a, a strong trigger of memory. Like if you smell something from childhood, even when you're 60, like it will bring back those memories and you recognize it immediately. And I think something as distinct as the smell of walking on the moon would probably be a very instantaneous oh, yeah, this is, yeah. This is definitely <laughs> right. what it smelled like when I was there, <laughs> right. or no, you're not even close. Right, yeah, one would think. I I, the, I mean, the other component of that that I, I uh, wanted to bring on to talk about is there are, uh, and you referenced it earlier, there are student payloads. So through Arizona State, through these young minds that you're connecting with uh, the aerospace industry and with NASA, um, there's actually going to be an opportunity now to uh, send up student payloads in the near future. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so we've partnered with Blue Origin, um, Jeff Bezos' rocket company, and another company called NanoRacks to send three student payloads up on their New Shepard suborbital rocket in a few months. And we had the students design experiments to address the five senses in space, and we didn't really give them any guidelines other than the technical requirements. We said design an experiment to teach you something about the senses in space. And a lot of them came back asking for some guidelines. And we said, no, we want you to take this and run with it and do you know, whatever you think of when you think of this. And so we had basically a pitch competition and a panel of aerospace professionals from the Phoenix area picked the three top uh, teams to fly. So we have one team that is sending up a payload they've called Space Devils in honor of ASU's mascot, which is the Sun Devils. And they're basically sending up a little figurine of our uh, our mascot, and they're going to monitor a bunch of different ways that he reacts to the G-forces of going into suborbit and down again. 
Um, we have another payload that's going to be looking at some of the behavior of bees and um, an instrument called a remote acoustic sensor, which can actually take changes in light and convert it to sound. It's pretty cool. Um, and then another team that is looking at the way things act when they hit each other in space. So like if you have asteroids colliding with each other or mm-hmm. bits of rock in the rings of Saturn. And is there is there anywhere that uh, listeners can go find all of this information or, or read more about the Five Senses of Space project more generally, or is it still kind of uh, in-house? Yeah, if you go to interplanetary.asu.edu and click on pilot projects, mm-hmm. there's a link that says how do we galvanize public and private support for space exploration? And there's links to a bunch of articles in there and some of the descriptions of things we're trying to do. That's very cool. So it's inter- interplanetary.asu.edu. And I, I would also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you also have a, a very cool website, tanyaofmars.com, if you want more information <laughs> on uh, on Dr. Harrison. And uh, I, I want to segue here uh, to Peter McGrath, uh, because I didn't realize prior to the show that, uh, that there would actually be overlap uh, between you two on, on this issue. But um, in reviewing some of Boeing's material before the show, I, uh, I happened to notice that in your work on the International Space Station, uh, there's actually also going to be some uh, student payload, uh, some st- student research, basically genetic research, I believe. Can you tell us uh, a bit about that? Sure. Yeah, we've uh, Boeing and Mini PCR launched a competition called Genes in Space in 2015, mm-hmm. with the goal of inspiring young minds to solve real-world problems in the biological and physical science sides. And we're partnered also with CASIS, Math for America, and New England BioLabs in this activity. You know, the, the competition really focuses on grades 7 to 12. And it can be either an individual um, proposal or a, or a team proposal. And the objective is really to look at um, DNA experiments that address challenges that we're going to face in space exploration. The winners get to have their experiment launched to the International Space Station where it is performed on orbit by an astronaut. Uh, we've had four winners to date over the last three years in the United States. We actually had two last year, uh, two really good examples, so we couldn't pick one of them. And the winner uh, for this year's competition will actually be announced next Thursday out at the um, International Space Station R&D Conference in San Francisco. Okay, this is very cool. And when will the actual uh, experiments take place? Is that Has that timeline been set? Well, it, typically after the award, um, it's done within a couple of months from then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this one will be done in the spring. Okay. By the way, we also uh, did the competition in the United Arab Emirates last year and actually had a winner and flew their payload last year as well. Okay, so th- well, and this will be something I, uh, that will be a, a yearly thing. It's open to the public? It, it is. Uh, we do it in the United States every year. Uh, matter of fact, if you want, I'll give you an example of a couple of the experiments that flew just to give you an idea of what comes out of these uh, brilliant, uh, I, I call them kids. Sure, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, middle school. One was to test the effect of cosmic radiation and microgravity on the immune system. Wow. And another one was studying gene expression changes in space that might help protect astronauts from unwanted cell death. You said this, these were grades 7 through 12? <laughs> Is that... Right. Well, actually, the last one, actually, she was 14 years old. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Um, well, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I, uh, you know, I think both of your, your those projects obviously tie in uh, very clearly with well, what has been an, an increase in uh, sort of the, the public awareness of science and of space travel, and uh, certainly Boeing, SpaceX have have been a, a huge part of that. Um, but you know, the, the the genetic research is just one one small piece of Boeing's efforts uh, in support of the International Space Station, and obviously the ISS. There's actually in this 
uh, Pew Research uh, Center poll that I referenced earlier, um, it seems space travel, it seems the, the space station itself is uniquely unifying, uh, uh, like few other issues are. Eight in 10 in the Pew poll said uh, that the International Space Station was a good thing for the country, and that cut across gender, political affiliation. It seemed to be pretty much consistent across the board. Um, but it seems like that it, it kind of feels like an afterthought in the coverage lately. Are we witnessing the ISS being put on the back burner in, in favor of these increased efforts on deep space travel? And should that be the case? You know, I, I think it should not be the case. You know, when we look at the space station extension and the support of deep space things going on, we see that as a and proposition, not an either or. You know, there's a lot of things we're doing on the International Space Station today that really helps us demonstrate critical technologies and systems that are needed to actually explore beyond low Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. and really helping us uh, prepare our astronauts for living and working in deep space. It remains an op it will remain in operation, or it should remain in operation, until really there's something else that's available in low Earth orbit. Otherwise, we risk having another gap in human spaceflight. Yeah, there's a, a, a fact that a lot of people don't know. The International Space Station has actually been human-tended for nearly 18 years now. Wow. So if you put that in context... Pretty much everybody who graduated from high school last year has not known a day where we haven't had a human living and working in space. That's amazing. I, I've seen some articles in uh, in recent weeks, actually, that sort of intimate that maybe um, that the, that it's outdated, uh, that maybe it, it's time for it to be phased out and that it sort of has a shelf life. I mean, can you provide any sense working on it? I mean, how... How long does it have left in it? Is it is it something that we can still rely on for, for good research, or is it... Uh, is it archaic? So I, I would say no, it's not archaic. Um, actually, I'll, I'll say that I actually worked on some of the elements that are actually flying up there today on station. And when we designed it, you know, it was designed for a, a lifetime of 15 years, but it had several factors on it. And so we continue to do studies with NASA that uh, have said that it can, it can uh, live to 2028 and probably well beyond that. So it, it's not really a a structural limitation, and, and we continue to work with NASA to provide additional capabilities, some of which are commercial capabilities like the NanoRacks airlock that's going up, that continue to augment the capabilities on space station and keep it relevant. And uh, so in addition, I guess, to because you kind of uh, referenced that there's sort of this, this push and pull between you know, these efforts for deep space exploration, which of course are, are both necessary and also sort of a bit more romantic, I guess. Uh, and then this work that has been going on for decades now on the International Space Station, uh, you guys are actually working to address several of those steps uh, between orbital missions and deep space missions. Um, you have both the, the Starliner and then also I believe you're working on a deep space gateway with NASA. Uh, can you kind of put that puzzle together for us? I mean, I, can't, I think they're kind of hitting different steps in the process. Um, but can you kind of make sense of that and, and what you guys are actually doing over at Boeing? Sure, and, and actually there, there's one other there, too, that we work on the Space Launch System, so I'll talk about all three of those. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, currently we're working on the Starliner. That will um, launch here mm -hmm. later this mm -hmm. year and actually start taking crews again from U.S. soil up to the International Space Station. It can also support other destinations maybe in the future as, as they arise. We're also, you know, we fly four passengers for NASA on their flights. We're looking at potentially flying a fifth that could actually accommodate a private passenger or um, an emerging spacefaring nation's astronaut. So we continue to engage in those opportunities. 
Uh, on the space launch system side, Boeing builds the, the core stages, which is the two cryogenic stages on the vehicle for NASA. Uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to look at that rocket. It's in production today. And it'll take uh, the Orion up to lunar orbit and support the deep space exploration efforts. Uh, the second variant we're talking about is going to launch in 2024, a little bit bigger version of it, which will actually be able to take large payloads as well as Orion, so things that you can use to construct uh, either the Gateway and or future Mars exploration vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Gateway side, you know, as the United States uh, focus has shifted towards returning to the surface of the moon, it, it really hasn't abandoned the future missions to the Mars and beyond. And with the gateway, you know, NASA's kind of identified this gateway as a critical piece of infrastructure that allows the U.S. to have the lead and actually have roles for the international partners uh, to really contribute. And it's a small outpost that gives you the capability to support or stage crew missions to the surface of the moon, but it also enables you to uh, do experiments on it and use it as a staging ground as we go to Mars and beyond. It actually, uh, I had read uh, read up a bit on it, and um, it ties in a little bit to to actually this this pupil as well. Uh, where a majority of Americans uh, say that they think astronauts, not only robots, uh, should explore space, um, but it's it's pretty closely divided, and that's one of the 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 kind of conversations and debates, I guess, that's going on is is to what extent should you know, automation should robots play a role, and to what extent should humans play a role? But the uh, the gateway that you guys are working on it actually increases at least the option of uh, using uh, remote devices and robotics. Correct? It does, and and you know I, I always say that you use robots quite often as precursors to human missions, and and having the humans on the ground and in the loop actually gives you a lot more flexibility in uh, looking at how you want to investigate a region. So I think they're very complementary. You know, we talk about the gateway as also being an opportunity to bring samples back from the lunar surface from maybe robotic missions that can be interrogated on orbit by astronauts and or packaged to return back to Earth. So it gives you uh, more flexibility, I think, in robotic missions as well. Uh, And with that, we're going to have to take our second break, uh, and we'll be back to pick up that conversation with uh, Peter McGrath and uh, bring in uh, Casey Dreyer from the Planetary Society here on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report, fedmanager.com. I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. I'm your host, Ben Carnes, and we're picking up our conversation uh, with Peter McGrath. And uh, Peter is the Global Sales and Marketing Director for Space Exploration at Boeing Defense Space and Security. And Peter, you were, you were discussing uh, that Boeing is, is sort of coming alongside 
NASA on their deep space gateway program. I had, yeah, I, I somewhat of a uh, of a space nerd, but I had not uh, actually encountered much on the uh, the deep space gateway previously. Can you give sort of just a, a rough overview quickly of kind of where it's positioned and what the timeline is on that? Is that something that we're looking at right around the corner? Um, what are the actual uh, details of that of that program and when we can start to to see it coming together? Sure. You know, the um, the gateway is really uh, comprised of a, a couple of elements. You know, it's going to be a rather small uh, structure that's positioned in a lunar orbit. Mm-hmm. I think that they're still looking at which orbit they talk about a rectilinear orbit, but um, it's going to be basically a, a power element or a power propulsion element, uh, some type of a habitat and uh, an airlock, and they could augment it with other capabilities beyond that. But that's kind of the basic structure of it. Um, the first item of the, actually, the power propulsion element, NASA is in the process right now of putting out a potential BAA here in September to start the procurement to go build that, to launch it in 22. And then, you you know, the, the goal is to have a gateway operational in the 24 to 26 time frame so that you can start doing missions in and around the moon. And then that allows you the flexibility to, um, you know, eventually bring a human lander and use a reusable ascent vehicle and go to the surface of the moon, but it also gives you the opportunity to prove out capabilities that you need to move on to Mars. So, I mean, I, I, essentially it's uh, accurate to think of it as sort of a, a staging ground in the uh, longer-term uh, journey further outward, essentially, I guess. Um, and, you know, I want to actually, this is sort of my own curiosity. I've, I've heard, uh, Dr. Harrison, you mentioned the, the student payloads, and uh, as I've been doing the research on some of the these incredible efforts with the, the seventh and twelfth graders who are sending up the, these incredible research. What does that actually look like? I mean, it sounds like as I've talked to people, this seems to be a very small world. I'm kind of curious. Uh, I think for many people, it's uh, it's hard to imagine the idea of uh, you know going to school, working on something, and then having your your research sent up to the International Space Station. This is sort of a a daily reality to you guys. I mean, is is it? Are, are you guys uh, uh, sharing? Um, it sounds like the timelines are pretty similar. How often, I guess, is what I'm asking. How often are these these types of rocket launches happen? How what does it actually look like to for, for you to arrange to have your your student payloads included aboard for over at ASU? Um, and and Casey uh, Casey Dry with the Planetary Society, you might also be able to to jump in here because it ties in a little bit to to your work, which is connecting average people and, and citizen scientists. Uh, to what has traditionally been a very difficult to access uh, space. Um, uh, I guess, uh, what, what does that actually look like? What, what is the, how often are these, these rocket launches happening and what, it, what does it look like to, to get aboard one? I mean, uh, it's kind of fascinating to me. <laughs> I guess I can only speak from our experience sure. with Blue Origin specifically, mm-hmm. um, but they basically have a specific student payloads program where for a very low cost, you can launch your student payloads with them. And uh, the way they like to phrase it is, if you can afford to buy football uniforms for your school, you can afford to send payloads into space at this point, which is pretty amazing. Um, the, the delay between like actually signing the contracts to get the launch slots and actually launching, um, I think was about like the nominal timeline, maybe about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just depends on both like how many 
slots they've already booked up with other payloads, either from other students or commercial companies that have paid to launch on these same flights. Um, and the flights themselves tend to happen um, every few months or so. They just had one um, on Wednesday this week, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just the, the kind of increasing regularity of it, I guess, is what strikes me. And that is consistent with uh, this polling that says uh, Americans believe that um, in short order in the next couple of decades that, that we'll be routinely traveling basically for, for pleasure. Um, so I want to, to take a second. I want to bring in Casey Dreyer, our, our third guest, who's been uh, waiting on the line. Uh, Casey is uh, the director of space policy with the Planetary Society. And uh, Casey, for those who don't know, can you give us just a quick rundown of where the Planetary Society fits into this, uh, this whole picture? The Planetary Society is a nonprofit, and it's really it's a it's a completely independent in that it's funded by members, just regular people around the world in the United States who choose by their own volition to you know send us a few bucks every month, support our work to promote space science and exploration. It's it's a really unique organization. There's very few others like it. We're the largest in the world. We have about fifty-two thousand dues-paying members and millions of more supporters across the world. And we really have three things that we try to advance. We want to advance planetary exploration. We want to advance the search for life. And we also have this, you know, kind of fringe idea of, like, we don't want the Earth to get hit by an asteroid, which is, you know, would make a pretty bad day uh, for most of us. And so we're really interested in planetary defense. You know, let's not become uh, like the dinosaurs and get slammed by an asteroid and go extinct. Those are three kind of areas we're really interested in, and we we like to think of ourselves as the interface between the public and then a lot of the work that um, uh, Dr. Harrison does and a lot of work that Boeing does up in space. We want to connect people to that feeling of excitement, to that feeling of wonder, and to get them involved and supportive of space exploration broadly. And uh, I was actually a lot of these sound so lofty when I was, was initially reading through the Planetary Society's website, uh, reading about planetary defense. I mean, it's like stripped from the pages of sci-fi. But, I mean, that that also applies to one of your bigger efforts. You have uh, the, the light sail project going on. And it's, it struck me as pretty unique uh, and a little bit mind-boggling that you're actually building a spacecraft, sending it into orbit, yet the project is entirely citizen-funded. Can you t- uh, tell us uh, about that project? Light sail is the idea of deploying a solar sail, just like you have with a sailboat, pretty much, and, and wind. You can do in space with a, a very reflective sail and sunlight. So photons from the sun, even though they're massless, they contain momentum. And so when they hit and reflect off of a, uh, a large solar sail, for example, you get just a tiny bit of a push. And if you make a big enough sail to the size of your spacecraft, you can use that push to tack in and out of the sunlight and to change your orbit and to maneuver in space. And this actually solves the problem that's particularly relevant to small spacecraft, which is how do you carry enough propellant? How do you move around in space? And so we're testing this. We're building a CubeSat, a three-unit CubeSat, basically the size of a loaf of bread. And we're going to launch it on the next launch of the Falcon Heavy rocket. It's going to go into Earth orbit, deploy this beautiful uh, silver sail about the size of a boxing ring. And then we will test solar sailing. And the idea is, this is a lot of what the Planetary Society does, that when we find a really cool idea that hasn't been pursued either by NASA or the private industry or even by academia, we can go to our members and say, hey, do you want to help us support something 
new? Do you want to try something maybe a little crazy and see if it works? And so we've been doing that with solar sails for a long time. It actually traces way back into the 70s from our, uh, one of our founders, Carl Sagan, uh, the idea of sailing through space. And so we've been working on this project a long time. We launched a tech demonstration of this back in 2015. We are just about ready to launch this one. The, the spacecraft is built, is being tested. We're just waiting for a ride into space. And so it's a very exciting moment for us. And we want to really engage the entire world to track the spacecraft when it goes up, to follow the adventure of the mission, and to see if it works. Because, frankly, this is pushing the envelope of what's possible. And again, the notion that... Uh that the average person could in that way be involved in space exploration is, is pretty incredible, I think, and pretty inspirational. Uh, so I understand that the, the projects are, they're citizen funded, crowdfunded, correct? Are they, are you basically serving as the arbiter between that funding and then making it happen uh, and bringing in the, the technical expertise or, or setting up, uh, what does that actually look like to make it happen to build this satellite? That's exactly right. And I like to say that the Planetary Society was Kickstarter before Kickstarter existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been doing this since the 80s when we were founded. And we, we, we find the right experts. We bring people together. We connect them with our uh, membership. And we generate the, the funds necessary to try these new things. And so we have uh, some very smart people. We're working with a lot of students, actually, from Cal Poly um, in, in California, the university there, to help build the spacecraft. So students are getting hands-on, you know, literally hardware experience building the spacecraft. We have technical experts, and then the idea is we want to share a lot of this information with the larger community. We want solar sails to go everywhere, mm-hmm. and we want solar sails to be used on more and more CubeSats in, in low Earth orbit and, and going beyond. And so we want to really seed this idea to enable space exploration to happen and, and more of it to happen, and to really pursue the idea of the exploration part of space exploration. Can we push a solar sail you can, you know, there's really no limit. There's, you know, there's no night time in space unless you get occulted by something and something blocks your view of the sun. You can ride the solar pressure all the way up to the outer solar system if you have ability to communicate, if you have a big enough solar sail. You can do a lot of interesting things with this. And is there, a, the way you reference this, I mean, I, I assume there is at least some sense, obviously, going, going into it that it will probably work. Uh, I mean, is this... Once that sale opens up, what is the timeline for getting the confirmation that it, it is or isn't working the way you expect it? Is it a months long process or does it start moving and, and you have your confirmation? The exact uh, timeline is on our website at sale.planetary.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes through a few checks. I think it's going to be about a week before we test deployment. The deployment actually happens relatively quickly. It's over the course of about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So we'll know, uh, we'll have a pretty clear idea. We, we have cameras on this spacecraft because we love pictures of the Planetary Society. We love the imagery of space. And so, of course, we want to share these like beautiful views of the sail deploying. The Earth will be reflecting off of the sail uh, from above. It's going to be a really stunning, really stunning uh, uh, vista to see there. So it'll be something that we will be sharing in real time. Uh, our launch date right now, from you know, we're kind of at the mercy of SpaceX, so we're it's no earlier than October 30th. That's when our launch window opens for mm-hmm. light sail. So we're we'll hopefully refine that day, but it should be sometime later this year. And is it uh, having not not closely followed the project? The is there how much question is there about whether the actual sailing component, whether there will actually be enough? Uh, I don't know if thrust is the right word, but whether it will actually provide enough. Uh, 
energy to 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 do what it's setting out to do is that i mean is is the experiment testing on that fundamental level or is the expectation that it'll get up there and barring you know anything anything failing it it essentially is expected to work um how how fundamental i guess is the test yeah, I mean, this is the beautiful thing about math and physics, right? That the the, the theory that this will work, you know, that mm-hmm. this, we know the math, we know the solar pressure, we know what area is necessary to impart momentum on this kind of a, of a massive spacecraft. That isn't the question. The question is how is the engineering implementation of it, mm-hmm. can it work well? Is it how, how effectively does it work with the design that we have of the spacecraft? That technology, then, that we can push out to other people. They know that that's a proven technology. That's a big thing in space exploration. You like this idea, and, and you heard Dr. Harrison mention this earlier, of, of a heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, space, in a way, is kind of interesting. It's, a lot of space engineering is very conservative, and it, it kind of flies against our intuition because we always think of space as this cutting-edge uh, aspect because it's so tough. But because it's so hard in space, because space is such a you know unforgiving environment, when you're building a spacecraft, whether it's a couple million dollars like FlightSail or billions of dollars like the, the, the Gateway, you want hardware that you have a high confidence that will not work, uh, that will work. <laughs> and you do that by saying, has it flown in space before? And anytime something hasn't flown in space before, you're taking a risk. And particularly astronauts, uh, NASA does not like to take risks with people's lives in space. And so you want to demonstrate something, whether it's through a a first test like this, through a lot of testing on the ground, uh, that you have a high confidence that something will work in space. And you you never really want to try something for the first time on a flight mission, because Mm -hmm. if that doesn't work, you've ruined years of effort, millions, if not billions of dollars. And, you know, who knows when they'll get the chance to do that again. And I'm going to have to uh, actually take our last break here, and we'll pick up this conversation with Casey Dreyer from the Planetary Society here on Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk here. I uh, apologize for that. They had a little technical difficulty here. Uh, welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. Uh, picking up our conversation with Casey Dreyer, who's the director of space policy uh, over at the Planetary Society. And Casey, I wanted to ask you, uh, you we mentioned the, the Light Sail project just before the break. And for those who, uh, who haven't yet checked it out, I do encourage you to go to the Planetary uh, Society's website and check out the Light Sail. It truly is uh, quite the spectacle and a beautiful craft. Um, but you you referenced in the uh, the beginning of the segment that uh, the Planetary Society is also working on a planetary defense system. <laughs> I wanted to dig into that a little bit just because it seems uh, sort of incredible. It's not just incredible; it's it's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And you know, we always kind of joke that the dinosaurs, you know, we we know a lot about them. And we're, we're pretty sure that the dinosaurs did not have a space program. And that eventually kind of bit them uh, when the mm-hmm. giant asteroid came and, and wiped them out about 60 million years ago. And, you know, so we know 
a couple of things. We know that there are tons of giant rocks flying around space very fast. We know that every now and then, uh, you know, depending on the size, whether every couple thousand years for small ones, every tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of years for big ones, some of those flying rocks slam into the Earth. The bigger they are, the more destructive they are. And we, you know, generally want to continue the human race, and we do not want to get hit by one of these. And so there are two aspects that need to happen. And this is a very serious thing. We have, NASA actually has a planetary defense coordination office uh, run out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, NASA also coordinates with FEMA and other aspects of the federal government for response plans. They're doing more and more integration and, and, and pre- preparation for this. And there, so you, you really have two angles for planetary defense when it comes to asteroids and things hitting the Earth. First is you want to find them, right? You know, that's your step one. You can't do anything if you don't know that something's coming your way. And so NASA supports, and the Planetary also, the Society also supports a number of astronomers and systems around the world that are constantly scanning the skies looking for these incredibly tiny, relatively speaking, for space, pieces of rock, and then once they find them, trying to precisely determine their orbit and project that out into the future. And what you want to look for is, you know, we know the orbit of the Earth around the sun. We can fast forward that, you know, mathematically into the future and compare it to one of these asteroids and say, is there any point in which these two orbits <laughs> coincide? Is there a point in the future where an asteroid is actually going to hit Earth? So far, good news, none of them are, at least within a certain amount of error. We, we get close flybys every now and then, but nothing that we know of yet is on a path for Earth. So good, we got some time. The second aspect of planetary defense is, should we ever find one that's going to be coming into uh, Earth's path, we need to be able to somehow change its trajectory so it it misses Earth, ideally. And there's a number of ways to do this. And so we've invested in some technology experiments to explore this area. And, the, and, and more along what I do is I try to help guide government investment to say this should be a priority for the nation and, honestly, the world to find ways to, to really get on top of this. And so there's a mission that NASA is actually working on right now. It's called DART. It's an asteroid uh, redirect test where you, it's going to slam a small piece of metal into a tiny moon around another asteroid. And they're going to validate the idea of like how much uh, momentum, or how, how much can we change this orbit of this tiny uh, asteroidal moon around its big asteroid and, and validate a lot of the assumptions and ideas about slamming something into an oncoming asteroid to change its directory. Another even more fundamental mission that we're trying to support is something like NEOCAM, which would be a space telescope dedicated to finding these tiny little asteroids. Asteroids are really hard to see. They're, they're generally the color of charcoal. And so, you know, space is kind of known to be black, and so you're looking for bits of charcoal in black space. You need something in the infrared. You look in heat signature, these things light up really easily. And so we need a space telescope dedicated to finding asteroids. And so there's a couple of pathways we're looking for. Ultimately, these are one of the most important things we can prevent against. It's one of the few, at least large-scale natural disasters that, at least in theory, is entirely preventable if we get on top of it. So this is one of the things that we think is important and, and something that's easily doable. Um, we just need to decide to do it. It is one that, that almost, it, it's so 
severe and unthinkable that I, I imagine it's almost difficult to get people to take it seriously, even as the actual, you know, price of not taking it seriously is impossibly large. So I, I it's it's sort of a frustrating one. But it, I mean, uh, this Pew poll is encouraging in that sense. There were there wasn't anything save climate change that Americans thought NASA should be focused on more than uh, asteroids potentially hitting Earth. So I. Uh, it's encouraging in that sense. Uh, I hope you can you speak a little bit. I, I think it was one of the most exciting things that I uh, learned about the Planetary Society uh, is the very cool grant project that you guys run. And it actually is directly related uh, and it gets right back at that nexus and gets to the heart of bringing citizens and citizen scientists into like actual science. Uh, can you t- tell us a little bit about the, the grant program? Yeah, this is the Shoemaker Grant Program, and, and it really again goes back to this, the tracking aspect of asteroids. And so NASA has these big sky surveys that they buy time on that are just automatically looking around for any kind of new asteroidal motion, very dim little movements in space, you know, calculating these things, trying to find them. Uh, but what's hard with these big sky surveys is that they're, they're not really set up to, they may find an asteroid, but they're not really set up to precisely define that future orbit. And that's the key, right? We don't, we don't really care about where the asteroid is now. We care about where the asteroid will be uh, in, rel- in respect where the Earth will be in the future. And you can, again, this is where the, the, the almost magical thing of like the, the mathematics accurately represents the physical world around us. Mm-hmm. We can if we predict the orbit, we can run it forward in the future. But the further, the further we go into the future, the hazier and the bigger the uncertainties get unless we have really precise understanding of how it's moving now. So the more information we can catch on these little asteroids now, the better we know where they will be in the future. And so we actually give these grants to some of the best. We, we call them amateur astronomers, mm-hmm. but, I mean, frankly, they're, they're running, you know, meter-sized telescopes out of some remote uh, Texas uh, uh, fields or in Spain or you know other places around the world where they're incredibly de- dedicated amateur astronomers. Well, I love the idea and, that you're you're actually recruiting, essentially, kind of recruiting to this battle. This this guy with a who's who's brilliant, but out you know in the middle of Texas who might not otherwise be able to to get engaged in that way uh, and pulling them absolutely. into that system. So cool. And then you're yeah, you're actually and, using and, what they find. We do, and we and we pay them money to upgrade their equipment. So what they then do is they once there's a new discovery of an asteroid, they you know using this incredibly precise, high quality equipment that they help uh, purchase with our with our members' support, they then track these asteroids and, and really precisely gauge their orbits, and that really helps refine these understandings. They they then submit this information to these giant asteroid public databases, and it really just helps us understand again where those things will be in the future. So we're helping filling in that interesting gap by getting these dedicated individuals around the world. And it truly is a, it's a worldwide uh, group of astronomers uh, to really enable them to do something good for humanity. And, and that's all because of our members and, and the organization. Yeah, I think it's, it's extraordinarily cool and laudable. Uh, and I, uh, I want to ask you about one more project that uh, actually ended up being a, a topic of conversation for me last night after I was uh, was reading about it on the Planetary uh, Society's website, and that is the laser bees. I mean, the name alone uh, raises so many questions. Can you tell us that that tie, it ties into the the various approaches to potentially diverting uh, a disastrous asteroid strike? Uh, but it's a it's a pretty cool idea that you guys uh, have worked on in the past. 
Yeah, so there's a number of ways, at least in theory, that you can move an asteroid, right? I mean, so a lot of people have seen the movie Armageddon, where you just send Bruce Willis, you know, your Bruce Willis plan is go to an asteroid, put some big bomb on it, blow it up, or move it off to the side or something. That's, that's a lot of risk in that. It, you know, it's hard to test nuclear weapons in space. We, you know, we have treaties saying we, we cannot do that. And so uh, there's other ways to do it, like we mentioned earlier with the DART mission, where you just slam a big hunk of metal into an asteroid. Uh, but there's other more out there ways that is worth exploring as well. And so one of these ideas, we call it these bees, but the idea is we fly a, a swarm of small spacecraft, and all of these small spacecraft are equipped with lasers <laughs> that they use from power from the sun, and they shoot lasers all at once on specific areas of an asteroid, and the lasers are powerful enough it, uh, it oblates. It, it kind of like creates a little puff. Um, it, pla- it turns into a little plasma on the surface of the asteroid. And again, it, it just gives a little bit of momentum pushing the other way, right? And this is your, your Newton's laws of physics. You have your equal and opposite reaction. So it puffs off a little bit into space. It gives the asteroid a tiny little push in the opposite direction. And so if you have enough of these, and they're shooting for long enough or in the right places, you might actually be able to, without touching the asteroid, without knowing what it's made of, without, you know, caring if it's a rubble pile or a big metal piece of metal or ice, you can just maybe push it enough early, you know, if you have enough time, that it misses Earth. So this is one of those areas that we funded early technology demonstration. This is what I was talking about earlier. you, you got to test some of these before you ever use them in mm-hmm. space. And you got to start deploying and validating the ideas. We did a lot of work with that with uh, some uh, the group in Scotland. And it's, you know, got it to that next step where if there's more uh, funding available, we can actually deploy this as a test. But really, we're helping these things get off the ground. It's it's really fascinating work. And uh, unfortunately, we are, we're coming up on the end of the show. But I want to take a minute and uh, just quickly uh, acknowledge uh, the guests who joined us, uh, Dr. Tanya Harrison, um, Peter McGrath. And uh, Casey Dreyer, Dr. Harrison, uh, is over at Arizona State University's Space Technology and Science Initiative. Peter McGrath, Global Sales and Marketing Director for Space Exploration at Boeing. And Casey Dreyer uh, from the Planetary Society. Uh, if you want more information on ASU's projects, interplanetary.asu.org and sale.planetary.org for the Planetary Society. Thanks for joining us on Fed Talk and have a nice weekend. 